0: Let me ask you this. Is there still a threat or a theoretical threat that he could be charged?
1: Yes. This is Scott Maxwell, a friend who's a reporter and columnist with the Orlando Sentinel. I called him up to get some tips about how to confront Frank's brother, John. He's 74 years old. The crime happened over 50 years ago. Highly unlikely, but technically, yes. Has the, has the brother you are talking to said he will, not talk, he will not sue him, or has he said he's still contemplating it? Oh, no. He would love to see his brother in jail. And and the great... Uh, I tell Scott the story. The thing you have working against you is what you already know you have working against you. And that's the notion that he could still be prosecuted. The only thing John could do is hurt himself by giving cops fresh evidence. If if I'm him, I'm just thinking, right now, there is no way I'm going to jail. The only thing I do is increase the chance that I come to jail by having... Right now, I've got a 0% chance So there's no way I help myself. This is Square Peg. I'm Rob Collins. Part 3. Awkward Exit Day 4 in Scunthorpe. It's going well. I'm feeling good about this story. I guess I've always had a thing for the underdog, and Frank certainly seems that. We're in this relatively small town, and Frank's brother, the one who's tormented Frank in one way or another for most of his life, he lives somewhere around here, but Frank hasn't seen him for many, many years. It feels ominous. High noon in sunny scunny. But I'm back at Frank's house going over documents. The man saves everything, and there's a ton to read. I see a letter from the British Ministry of Defense. The evidence of Mr. Carver's own signed statement, dated 16 June 1965, confirms that his brother was expressing a view with a glass in his hand when he bent forward at the same time as the glass came upwards. It confirmed... As a reminder, Frank sued the government initially because they wouldn't give him any compensation for what happened with his eye and subsequently being discharged.
2: I want to know who was responsible for that.
1: Frank points to his missing eye.
2: Was it the army or was it him? We know he did it, but because he's a member of the army, they take responsibility for it. And really, what they should do is pay me compensation for that and pan the shit out of him for doing it. You know, you're a naughty boy and give him a good whacking, you
1: know. But I'm looking at this letter from the Ministry of Defence explaining why they denied Frank's claim. They said that they were not responsible for the loss of Frank's eye because what happened was an accident. They said Frank signed a statement at the time confirming that it was an accident... In that statement, Frank supposedly reported that he bent forward at the same time that John was, quote, expressing a view with a glass in his hand. Load of rubbish. So you're saying you never said that?
2: No. We, Boy, what
1: said so Frank denies making that statement, which is a good thing because it seems silly to me. So let's think how that would be. I
2: didn't have a glass in my hand. He did.
1: Well, let's, let's assume yeah. they're meaning that...
2: I'm, it, I'm me. Here's Where the absurdity
1: John? of it. So So I'm John holding a glass expressing a view at this, so somehow they're saying that you leaned in at the moment I express a view with a glass in my hand.
2: Oh, that's what you were talking about. (laughs) What a lot of crap.
1: Uh, I mean, it seems physically impossible. It is. I may have gotten a bit over eager here. I don't know that it's physically impossible to express a view so passionately while holding a glass that you break it. Bill Bainham, Frank's army roommate, did say that they were fragile, But still, it seemed highly unlikely, right? But then, a few minutes later, I see a different report. Notes from the Army Medical Board: Brother, in playful mood while on Christmas leave, threw some brandy in a drambuie glass at him and accidentally injured his left eye, necessitating enucleation five days later. (laughs) Playful mood.
2: Well, as I say, I, I just can't pull that together. Show me that little milk. And that's a, that is untrue from my point of view.
1: Frank goes to the kitchen to get some coffee. He seems a little uncomfortable with where this is going. I'm looking at a second contemporaneous Army report where Frank supposedly said that what happened was an accident. In this second account, Frank apparently said that John was in a playful mood and that things got out of hand. Are we really imagining that the army just made up all of these statements?
2: Do you want any biscuits for that, raw chocolate biscuits?
1: No thank you. Right. um... Yeah, so this is on May 10th, 1965, an examination.
2: That is somebody saying something to somebody else about that's not true. Well of course it's not true. It's possible, let's, let's put it this way, it's possible that because my father has said John's going to do this for you and you no, know, don't give him a problem, and it's possible I could have, I say could have,
1: uh... yeah, Frank realises that he could have said those things at the time, I press him on this because suddenly it makes sense. You think it's possible... It is
2: possible that I protected him from getting into desperate trouble. It's possible I protected him from...
1: And your father would have wanted you to do that.
2: Of course, yeah.
1: And you you wanted to please your father. Of course. So, at the time, Frank said that his brother accidentally gouged out his eye with a drinking glass. That would explain what Bill Bainham heard at the time... But now, Frank claims that it was a deliberate assault and that his brother should be prosecuted 54 years later. Of course, it's possible that he was lying at the time to protect his brother and the family's reputation, but I'm confused as to how or if he could really forget that he did that. And yet he wasn't trying to hide this from me. Otherwise, why would he let me see those documents? Strange. It sure would be interesting to hear what John Carver has to say about it. I considered trying to contact John before I came to England, but decided to wait. I want to try to interview him in person. So after I arrived, I mailed him a letter. All I had was an address we'd found through a public record search. In the letter, I explained who I was and asked him to call me to schedule an interview. I even had some special business cards made listing a UK phone number I'd gotten through Skype so that John could call me easily. Very professional. But a few days went by and I didn't hear from him. So in the meantime, Beth and I dug around a bit. I was starting to feel like a real investigative journalist.
0: Thank you for calling 101. We're connecting you to Humberside Police. If you require an alternative force, press hash.
3: Humberside Police. How can I help? Hi. I wondered if um, I could either speak to or whether you knew if there was a Mandy Micah who worked at Humberside Police.
1: You might remember hearing that back in 2011, Frank got the police to open a case against John. 46 years after the alleged assault that led to Frank's left eye being removed, the detective who investigated then was named Mandy, and we wanted to speak with her. Frank had said the case was ultimately dropped because his sister told the police that Frank was drunk and fell onto the glass. That seemed unlikely, right? Both that, what, there was a glass lying on the floor and Frank passes out and somehow hits it just right? Or more unlikely that the police would just hear that story and say, okay, case closed? Yeah, it doesn't
0: look like she works for us anymore, unfortunately.
3: Do you know if she she did work for you previously or can we not...
0: it it won't come up on my system at all. So she could have done. But because if she doesn't now, she won't come up on the system anymore.
1: Now, if we were in the US, we could just look up public records to see what happened. But here in the UK...
0: According to the law, there's um, almost no way for a journalist to
3: find someone's criminal record.
1: That's Anna Sandra, the London-based journalist I hired.
3: There's a single way that could lead to receiving um, the information if it's a big case where you can argue that there's a public interest on the matter, and and, and that's a difference
1: between UK and US law. In the US, you know, any, whenever anyone's arrested, their mugshot is becomes public. So there's better privacy laws in the UK when it comes to criminal records, which is probably a good thing, but it just happens to not be good for for me.
3: <laughs> yeah, for our story, um, yeah, it, it wasn't helpful at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's one reason we want to try to talk to Detective Mandy. I want to find out why she dropped the case, but also why she opened it in the first place. I mean, 46 years, isn't there some kind of statute of
4: limitations? There is no statute of limitations for... Uh, indictable offenses, so cases that would go to the Crown Court for the more serious cases.
1: This is Dr. Hannah Quirk, then a senior lecturer in criminal law and justice at the University of Manchester School of Law.
4: There's a legal maxim here that time doesn't run against the Crown, so there's no formal statute of limitations. Um, Most common law jurisdictions don't have a statute of limitations. The U.S. is quite of an outlier in, in this respect.
1: I, I can't believe that the U.S. could be the outlier in anything when it comes to advanced countries. <laughs> 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 I haven't... <laughs> it's, it's exceptional in many ways. <laughs> oh
0: my goodness!
1: I asked Dr. Quirk about what I perceive to be obstacles Frank faces in pursuing criminal justice, such as the fact that he reported at the time that what happened was an accident.
4: I mean, I think the, the main difficulty would be the evidential issues. So... The defense would be able to stand up at trial and say, you told a completely different story. You've admitted you've lied under oath before, um, or you've lied to the police before. Why should the jury believe you now?
1: I was worried about this, about Frank's credibility, if the case was revived.
4: But juries are often quite sympathetic now, because particularly with the historic sex abuse cases, and what's been quite worrying in this country is how many of the... Um, Protections have been removed for defendants, which has made it much easier to bring prosecutions. And the Crown Prosecution Service has taken the view that victims should be treated very sympathetically. If there are discrepancies in their testimony, well, that could be because of the trauma they've suffered or because of the passage of time.
1: Dr. Quirk was concerned that this might not be good overall for the justice system, but it certainly seems good for Frank. It makes me want to know even more why the police dropped the case in 2011. But for now, I feel stuck and kind of frustrated. And Frank wasn't particularly helpful on this topic. He had said that he had letters from the police about this, but somehow he couldn't locate them. Somewhere deep in the back of my intuition, that rubbed me the wrong way. I had come all the way to England to tell Frank's story, and now he was being cagey, and I didn't understand why. But ever the optimist, I let that feeling drop, and Beth and I try gumshoeing it. We have lunch at Carver's Fish and Chips, the restaurant the family owned until about five years ago. Maybe we'd find someone there who knew the family and had heard about this decades-long conflict between the Carver brothers. And we struck up a bit of a conversation with Michelle, who was our our waitress, who had worked at Carver's, what did she say, for 18 18 years.
3: Well, she said that she didn't have too many dealings with the family themselves, as someone who worked there, but of Olive, Frank's mother, just that she was a lovely woman, sort of really well-known in the community. She said that... If you ask anyone really in this area about Olive Carver, they'll have a, you know, a lovely or fun anecdote to tell about her. Um, Of Eric, she said that he seemed like a nice guy, but she didn't know him all that well.
1: I haven't yet mentioned that Frank had another brother, Eric, a few years younger than Frank. Eric took over the fish and chip shop from their parents, but he died of cancer in 2005. Eric's widow, Rose, sold the shop a few years later, but we learned from Michelle, our waitress, that Rose now ran the dry cleaners just down the street. That's good to know.
3: And that's when we mentioned Frank and John, these brothers, and we sort of mentioned how they were two brothers that have had these fallings out, and it's, you know, potentially a violent fallout, and whether she knew anything about, you know, these two characters having worked at the fish and chip shop.
1: At the mention of violence in the family, Michelle physically recoiled in surprise.
3: Yeah, well, it was certainly wasn't a story she'd heard before, right? She seemed shocked to know there was fighting in this family that, you know, she seems to be such a, a well-known and much-loved family of the community that there might be any kind of infighting was a, a big surprise to her.
1: Yeah, which surprised me that she would be so surprised. I would think for someone who's worked there for 18 years and heard all those stories, talked to the people, I would have expected someone like her to have at least heard even if she didn't know the details of the eye but, but that tells me that they've kept it pretty darn quiet
3: considering she was even surprised to hear that they'd fallen out you know if someone you work with every day has kind of got estranged brothers you would have thought you would at least have some inkling that there was maybe something amiss in the, in the family dy- dynamic there Very, very strange.
1: I don't know what to make of this. I mean, Frank has been to the High Court of Justice in London, but people here in Scunthorpe, where he's lived most of his life, don't seem to know a thing. It kind of makes me worried. Maybe there's more to the story. Or less to the story. Anyway, later that night, I check in with Anna, our researcher in London.
0: Uh, Accidentally, I came across uh, a photo, and it looks like... It's John.
1: That's after the break.
0: Uh, Accidentally, I came across uh, a photo on the Hadrian's Old Boys Association, Mm -hmm. and it looks like it's John.
1: A few minutes later, Anna emails me the photo. This is the third picture of John I'd seen, and the only recent one. I'd seen one from when they were young, and then Frank had sent me a photo of the family from the 1980s, where John basically looked like a regular guy, then in his 40s. But this photo that Anna found was taken just last month. It was from a reunion dinner for that alumni group of former apprentices at the army camp where Frank and John had both been stationed. It's a picture of three men, and it looks like it was taken toward the end of the evening. The men look well-lubricated. They all presumably started the night in tuxedos, but now two of them had shed the bow tie and jacket. All three wore old-fashioned-looking green combat helmets. According to the caption, the man in the middle, with his arms around the other two, is Carver. And I gotta say, if you called up Central Casting and asked for a mean-looking old man to play the villain, this is who they'd send. He's red faced, probably pushing 300 pounds, and while the other two guys are just mugging for the camera, Carver has a hint of a sneer. He looks menacing. So now, if my phone rings and it's John calling to schedule an interview, I'll have this disconcerting image in my head. But there's a problem. Well, another problem. I went to see Frank the next day, a Friday, and while I was getting out my audio gear, Frank mentioned some awful thing John had done, and I casually said, Yeah, that's something I hope to ask him about. And then things got tense with Frank. More than tense, actually. Frank said, What do you mean, ask John? I repeated what I had told Frank before, that I would need to at least try to talk to John while I'm here. And then Frank got upset. He said that he didn't want me doing that. He didn't want me interfering until he's ready to pursue the case again. And with his current health situation, he isn't ready. So this was surprising, to say the least. Before I even booked my flight, Frank and I had talked about this. You know, while I'm there, I'm going to want to talk to other people as well. I'm going to need to, actually, for... uh, So, and that's going to actually include trying to talk to John...
2: Oh my god <laughs> now i I cannot and will not approach him at all I, I won't I never have done for years I, I now if you if you want to, to I know I know what's coming up it's just like a journalist uh, yes. approaching him and I can tell you what he will say. it'll be fo
1: in case you missed that Frank thought that John would tell me to fo that is fuck off.
2: That's what I presume he will say. You see, when you, when you approach him, I, I would imagine you would approach him, first of all, who you are, and who you're from, what you're doing. Right Now, it's that bit He'll, he will absolutely not want to know. He's a guilty man. He knows he's damn guilty.
1: Frank told me he wouldn't contact John himself, but could be of help.
2: I know where he drinks. I know where
1: he lives. I know exactly
2: where his house is you know, oh my god there's a lot for a lot for you to learn
1: <laughs> but now for some reason things were different i was sitting with frank apprehensively holding an unplugged microphone and he was getting visibly upset at the thought of me talking to his brother i reminded him that we'd already talked about this and that he told me he understood that i would need to try to contact john frank didn't remember saying that i said well i have a recording of you saying that he said he'd like to hear that i said that could be arranged and on it went but i could see him getting more stressed and agitated (laughs) frank's recurring cancer was in the background here too he'd recently had another ct scan and was waiting for the results he said he couldn't handle any more stress i told frank i needed some time to think about all of this and was going to leave they have a no-shoes house, so I had to pack up my gear in my socks while Frank hovered and then go to the front door to tie up my Nikes. Bit of an awkward exit. Well, this feels shitty? I tend to be pretty conflict-averse. I get along with people. I can count on one hand the relationships in my life that have any unresolved friction. I'm kind of the anti-Frank. But anyway, I'm not accustomed to this, and I don't like it. I call Beth, who's back in York, and tell her what happened. Did
3: it seem like it was a, a sort of reactionary anger, or do you think this is a problem that Frank's really not going to be able to overcome?
1: I don't know. He said a couple of things. He said, you know, well, what if you go and knock on his door, and he does to you what he tried to do to me. He attacks you or something, and and I kind of joked i said well I'll, as long as i'm recording <laughs> recording it i'll I'll, t- I'll take it if that <laughs> happens which he, he sort of laughed at that
3: did it did it seem like he was it was a genuine sort of security fear that he was sort of hesitant in you contacting john Or do we think maybe there's sort of another underlying reason
1: i think he fears that if i stir up trouble in town and he said oh, he, he said as much and i wish i could have recorded the conversation i had with him but i couldn't but it's good for me to while it's fresh in my mind remember it to you um he said you know you can cause up trouble but once you go back to america it it's, it's it could still come back to me and to kiki which is true and, and <laughs> but you know it was true when i told him before i booked my flight
3: It's a tough one. I mean, I guess if if we play this exactly to how Frank wants us to play it, then, you
0: know, we're sort of,
3: in a way, kind of being played a bit by him. If we, you know, if you come to England and just record him and nobody
1: else, that's not really a... (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to give up, though. Maybe Frank just needs some time to let this sink in. You know, sometimes something seems like a good idea when it's far off, but then when it gets real, it's different. So I sent Frank an email with that audio from the earlier call just to remind him. I hope he comes around soon, because I've got someone coming into town who really wants to meet him.
5: So there was this, um, what, announcement on the university careers?
1: This is Marie Ween. She's from France, but is a student at the University of York. She is the other associate producer I hired, along with Beth.
5: I didn't, I didn't understand this, this posting. I was like, what is this? <laughs> what? <laughs> there was nothing. It was in the middle of like a job for like uh, dog sitters, and then there was this in the middle of that.
1: <laughs> so adding Marie to the team while everything's turning to hell and Frank and I are on the outs could seem like an odd choice, I know, but it actually feels right. Like I said, I wasn't planning on giving up. If I'm going to drown in this story, might as well do it with some company, right? Plus, Marie really wanted to be involved and kind of refused to take no for an answer. I bring her up to speed about what's happening with Frank.
5: I think we need to talk to Frank about it again. Is it possible?
1: Yeah, it's possible. Um...
5: Like, I'd rather... Like, we need to make things happen and we can't just keep... Uh, being like, oh, running the circle of so many mysteries, with so many people to meet, with <laughs> so many things we have to do. We oh should. Gosh, you are more excited about this than I am. I am. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> well, I am. I was so excited about it.
1: Man, this is a much needed boost considering what's happening with Frank. And now my podcast team is complete. In case you've lost track, there's Anna from Romania who's doing research in London.
5: I've been sent back and forth.
1: Beth, from England, who has spent time with Frank.
5: You're not an anger. that's unfair.
1: And now Marie, from France, who's just here for the weekend.
5: There's something mysterious about it I want to find out.
1: Oh, plus Ashley Hall, my co-producer, who's back in the U.S. consulting with me. I called her earlier to tell her about Frank, and she said...
5: He's somewhere from being
0: a little manipulative to, I would say, moderately manipulative.
1: But Ashley's always been suspicious of Frank. I'm much more digging Marie's enthusiasm.
5: We need to talk to John, we need to talk to other people, so what else could we do?
1: But unfortunately, things get worse with Frank. He sent me an angry email that concluded, This really has pissed me off. How on earth am I supposed to trust you now? You have stressed me out big time today. By the way, the hospital spoke to me this afternoon. Things ain't looking good. The ball is in your court, Rob." What the hell's going on? Did he really forget that we'd had that conversation? Or is it something else? And that cliffhanger about the hospital? Jeez. I don't really need to talk to Frank anymore. I could do the rest of the story against his wishes if I just want to get to the bottom of any criminal activity. But that doesn't feel right. I mean, I'm supposed to be helping Frank. And I know he's experienced mental health challenges. And that, along with this potential recurrence of cancer, makes me hesitate. I called Frank on Saturday morning to see if we could meet to talk about this. He agreed, but wanted to wait until Monday to meet. Kiki's out of town for the weekend, and I think he wanted to wait until she was back before deciding anything. So Marie and I did a little sleuthing around town. We asked around to the local pubs to see if anyone remembered Derek. He was the bartender and owner of the club where Frank and John first had conflict on New Year's Eve 1964. Frank had mentioned when we were first talking over Skype that Derek was still alive.
2: I know where he lives. I phoned Derek just about half an hour before I got stabbed in the face. I rung Derek and apologized for the mishap in the club.
1: But no one had even heard of Derek. Another disappointment. Marie is a good sport, though. She plans to come back
5: yeah, I'll be back. I think I had very high expectations of this weekend and I thought we were going to be so actively walking around and running to see people from houses to houses and instead we had more challenges. It wasn't happening as easily as I thought it would be, but I'm frustrated because I'm going back and, and I was hoping to help more and to To learn more about the story, but it didn't happen.
1: You and me both. I had lunch with Frank on Monday. He didn't want to record, but told me about that call from the hospital. It was a bit confusing, but the CT scan results showed some growths on his lungs, but they weren't sure if they were cancerous, or if so, what kind of cancer. Basically, they needed to do more tests to see how serious it was. Afterward, I call Ashley, my co-producer back in the U.S. Hey, Rob. Hey, do you, can you talk for a few minutes? Or do yes. Yeah. So I met him at the pub that's next door to his house. Um, the major takeaways: Kiki was there, by the way, which I was really glad. It was nice to have her there, and I actually got to speak to her um, just for a few moments herself when frank went up to the bar to get another guinness i got to talk to kiki and she you know she she was concerned she was she was concerned mostly for frank's level of stress with what's going on with him medically yeah but he did go on to say well my health these tests that are coming back my um you know i'm 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 worried about and he said to kiki you know kiki is the most important thing in my life and if if anything were to to happen that would cause us to break apart well i would have nothing in my life and you know she didn't jump in and say oh frank you never have to worry about that you know <laughs> i should mention that the house they live in belongs to kiki all right so beyond that what are your what are your fears what are what's causing you the stress are you worried about harm coming to you are you worried about physical violence coming to you or to kiki as a result of that and he didn't dismiss it. He 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 didn't say yes, but he said, well, "Well, I don't. I just don't know. I don't know what he's capable of. He could do things. You know, he knows people. He could find yeah. it, find a way to to disrupt Frank's my life. My life at a time that's particularly hard right now with what's going on medically.
0: I'm certainly not trying to, you know, advocate that we upend." the life of a guy that sounds like he's not doing very well. Uh, And like small towns are hard. I understand that too. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the other hand, I don't want you to have to like not utilize stuff while you're there, like waiting to see, you know, like, you know, Frank feels a little better today, a little better today, a little better today. Like, you know, like, oh, he finally let me back in. And he knew that he was having like tests done before you you came. Right. So the mature thing would have been to go, okay, you know what? Maybe this isn't the time for Rob to come. I'm gonna call him. But he did. He wanted you to come and he wanted you to to give him all this attention.
1: Or as Beth put it, when I caught up with her
3: he really wants this story to be told, right? But, but he wants it
1: told his way.
3: Well, we all do, don't we? <laughs> we all want our stories told our way.
1: Short of talking to John, I'm not really sure what else I can do. I didn't make any specific promises to Frank, but I did vaguely say that I wouldn't do anything to hurt him. So with my trip winding down, Beth and I interview Frank one last time. Maybe she can help break this impasse. We start by asking Frank for more details about the alleged assault and the supposed weapon, this Drambui glass.
2: You can see the scar there on the cheek. Yeah. Uh
1: Uh-huh.
2: And the drambuie glass that went in there, it's shaped like like a shaped of a woman's body.
1: Okay.
2: And it's about that tall. And it's very robust.
1: And right? you're sure of that? Like I'm absolutely positive. It I have been a thin I wanted to find a 1960s drambuie glass to verify this. Maybe Derek, the bartender, could have helped with that. But unfortunately, it looks like we're not going to get to speak with him either. We asked Frank about meeting Derek, and Frank told us what Beth later called a shaggy dog story. I didn't know what that was.
3: A shaggy dog story is when you sort of lead someone down the path so much with this convoluted, confusing story, so much so that you kind of miss the point of the punchline, if that makes sense. I think we asked him, "Can we? would you mind if we spoke to this Derek character and we got this story that had twists and turns. I drove to this city, then I drove to this city, and he was in this pub, and then characters were coming in the story and leaving the story. And... Halfway through, it kind of was no longer obvious what we were still talking about, and you know, and but the end conclusion was no, you you can't speak to Derek.
1: Frank does does that quite a bit.
3: Yes, I've I've experienced today his sort of often you would begin by asking a question, and then ten minutes later, your question hadn't been answered, but you've been told a sort of long and highly detailed story from Frank's life.
1: This sucks. I feel like my story is crumbling. Is this really going to turn out to just be me hanging out with a slightly sociopathic old dude? Maybe Ashley was right, again. Maybe I was being manipulated. Still, I felt like, given his health, mental and physical, I should try to play by his rules. But at the end of our interview, Beth asked Frank a brilliant but simple question.
3: With your family... Or your family relations? Is there anything that you regret? No.
2: No fate fate looked after my life. Anything at all. Why should I? I mean, ask them that question.
1: Ask them that question? What would give you a sense of peace? Well,
2: the only... The sense of peace... Don't forget, now, today... I have gone through hell in my body. Uh-huh. I am waiting now for a result as to which cancerous cell have I got in my lungs. It's there, but I have yet to find out what and which one. But I know I've got it. I've been told that. And so, I'm in hell at the minute, but I'm not letting on. I think if John Carver had the bloody guts to come and confront me now, after what he's done to me, I've always been there ready to welcome a brother which I've never had.
1: wait, hold on, seriously, now.
2: but can people catch up with so much bitterness between them over these so many years can 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 that be buried? I doubt I don't know.
1: So ultimately deep down, you really would ultimately like to reconcile.
2: I'm not as evil as what he is. Right.
1: How could we not try to speak with John? Square Peg is a Lucid 48 production. It was written and produced by Ashley Hall and me. Visit our website, squarepegpodcast.com to learn more.